the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we'll talk with Rachel Gresler. She's a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements. Yesterday marked the 31st, or rather the 31st anniversary, I guess it's the right way to put it, since President Reagan signed the Tax Reform Act of 1986. We're going to talk about that act as well as the one that Congress is currently working on and whether or not this is a um, pro-growth uh, budget that they're putting together, tax reform. Uh, Rachel Gresler will join us to talk about that in the five o'clock hour. We're also going to talk with author Jeff Kinley, his book, The End of America, Bible Prophecy and a Country in Crisis. He'll join us uh, in the uh, latter part of the five o'clock hour as well. Well, Senate Republicans adopted a budget for the next fiscal year, clearing a critical hurdle for the GOP to push an overhaul of the tax code. Well, the Senate's uh, late Thursday passage of the budget blueprint in a 51-49 vote primarily along party lines helps unlock the procedure that Republicans plan to use to rewrite the tax code with just GOP votes. It also allows the tax bill to lower projected revenue by up to $1.5 trillion over the next decade. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky was the lone Republican to vote against that budget. Passing this budget is critical to getting tax reform done so we can strengthen our economy after years of stagnation under the previous administration. That's a quote from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor on Thursday. Budget resolutions, they're non-binding. They don't require the president's signature. They generally reflect the party's priorities. And they're separate from the spending bills that actually fund the government. The only thing about this that matters is uh, preparation for tax reform. That's what Senator Bob Corker said. He's a member of the Senate Budget Committee. Well, following the Senate passing of that resolution, the White House released a statement applauding the measure, calling it an important step in the administration's agenda. The bill's passage uh, capped a series of amendments voting Amendment votes, rather, Democrats used to drive home their argument that the GOP tax rewrite would benefit the country's wealthiest citizens at the expense of the middle class. Now, when we talk to Rachel Gresler in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk about uh, what that means. Uh, what is a pro-growth uh, reform and what matters most in that category in terms of who gets what, who pays taxes, who's paying less and so on. So we'll get into that. Well, uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer on the Senate floor on Thursday said, looking at the GOP tax plan, the American people have to wonder, is now the time to tilt the scales even further in favor of big corporations and the very rich? Now, again, we're going to talk about whether or not that's an accurate assessment. The Republicans released a framework last month that sketched out a range of tax changes that included lower taxes on corporate profits, incentives for businesses, fewer and lower individual income tax brackets, and the end of estate uh, taxes with the goal of simplifying the code and boosting the economy. You know, that whole postcard thing. Well, the House passed its own budget earlier this year. White House aides and some Senate Republicans have been urging the House to simply take up the Senate budget and pass 
it. An amendment passed late Thursday allows the House to take up the Senate-passed bill version and likely avoids the need for a conference. That's when the two sides come together to work out their differences. After the Senate passed its budget, House Speaker Paul Ryan released a statement saying the bill keeps Republicans on track, track rather, to enacting historic tax reform, indicating the House would take up the measure. Well, the Republicans have yet to release tax legislation. Senator Orrin Hatch out of Utah, he's the chairman of the Finance Committee. He said he hoped to release the tax plan by early November. Deficits matter and the taxes that we address ought to be about growing the economy that that actually create more revenues toward reducing the deficit. That's a quote from Senator Jerry Moran, also a Republican. The Democrats criticized the plan as a giveaway to the rich because a number of proposed changes, including lower business tax rates and the repeal of the estate tax, would benefit the top sliver of um, wealthy householders before the uh, budget passes. Uh, Senate Democrats proposed several amendments, most of which failed. Senators Maria Cantwell out of far sister state in Washington, and Chris Van Hollen of Maryland, they forced a vote on whether to bar a tax rewrite from ending or limiting the federal deduction for state and local taxes. House Republicans are considering abolishing the popular deduction, but may uh, preserve part of it. The Senate blocked the amendment Thursday on a procedural motion in a party line vote. An amendment by New Mexico uh, Senators Tom Udall and Martin Heinrich Uh, to provide resources in rural communities to offset property tax revenues lost due to the presence of tax-exempt federal lands passed with 58 votes. The Senate rejected by a 7 to 93 vote an amendment from uh, Mr. Paul that would have replaced the $1.5 trillion tax cut with a $2.5 trillion cut. Apparently they weren't quite ready for that. The Senate voted down an amendment that would uh, would have prevented a future fast-track vote on Arctic drilling. On the 48 to 52 vote, Senators John Manchin uh, voted with the Republicans. Senator Susan Collins voted with the Democrats. Given the Republicans' 52-48 Senate majority, the absence uh, Early this week of Senator Thad Cochran created some questions over whether Senate GOP leaders would have enough support to pass the budget. But Mr. Cochran, he uh, who had been recovering from health issues in Mississippi, returned to the Senate on Wednesday. Uh, We've got to be uh, we've got the walking wounded all coming back to vote. Senator uh, Lindsey Graham said at the time he acknowledged that passing sweeping tax legislation would be more challenging than approving a budget. We're at the bottom of the mountain and we've got to keep climbing to the top. Um, we're going to continue to watch that climb to the top, whether or not they actually make it. We'll just have to wait and see. Well, paving the way for potentially the most comprehensive tax reform package in decades is what this budget uh, means. The proposal is significant. It's a step toward implementing the president and Congress's tax reform agenda. However, it fails to make significant cuts to federal spending, an important piece of the puzzle toward long-term economic prosperity, something to, uh, to look for and follow. The budget lays out reconciliation instructions to the Senate Finance and House Ways and Means Committees that would allow for up to $1.5 trillion in net tax cuts. A late amendment to the Senate plan adopts components of the House-passed budget, which may diminish the need for a conference committee, as I mentioned earlier. Paul Ryan said they will take up the Senate version. It also allows for any reconciliation bill produced by the Ways and Means Committee to move directly to the House floor. If the House accepts the Senate changes as they are, this could accelerate the timeline for a tax package to move to the House floor uh, by several weeks, sometime in November, early December, no doubt.
Well, President Trump vowed on Monday to protect a popular retirement savings program, pledging to leave it untouched in the forthcoming Republican tax overhaul plan. Mr. Trump, in a tweet, shot down an idea that had been circulating in Washington policy circles and worrying the retirement savings industry, limiting pre-tax contributions to retirement accounts. There will be no change to your 401k, the president wrote on Twitter. This has always been a great and popular middle class tax break that works and it stays. End quote. Mr. Trump's comments point to a challenge Republicans face as they race to write and pass a tax plan. They have ambitious targets for rate cuts and a self-imposed $1.5 trillion limit on the size of the tax cut over a decade. Those guidelines press them to look for large tax breaks that they can limit or repeal and to seek budgetary maneuvers that shift the timing to tax revenue into a period measured by congressional scorekeepers. The proposal to cap 401k contributions at as little as $2,400 a year and push additional savings into so-called Roth-style Roth accounts um, where post-tax dollars go in and money comes out tax-free in retirement was a combination of both. Uh, much of the revenue it generated would have come from accelerating tax collections from the future into the near term. But again, the president says no to the 401k plans under the forthcoming uh, proposal, or at least no to amending those plans. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Rachel Gresler, from a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements. We'll look back 31 years to President Reagan's Tax Reform Act and ahead to what's likely to come out of the House and Senate in 2018. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, students at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. expressed support for President Trump's tax reform plan, but only when they were told it was Senator Bernie Sanders' tax plan. Now, I bring this up because we have a tendency to look less at um, what the plan actually says than who proposed the plan. I mean, it must be bad if fill-in-the-blank has proposed it. So I find this rather interesting. Campus Reform, which is a conservative news site that focuses on higher education, interviewed multiple students who initially said they disagreed with Trump's plan. The same students, however, proceeded to agree with details of the president's proposal when they were masked as bullet points from Sanders' plan. Well, Campus Reform media director Cabot Uh, Phillips interviewed students on camera asking for their initial thoughts on Trump's comprehensive tax reform plan. It's better for the upper class than anyone else, they parroted. It's probably not the most efficient nor beneficial to the general populace, another student added. Phillips then asked those same students about three separate parts of the Trump tax reform plan, portraying them as pieces of Sanders' more compassionate alternative. Phillips first asked about Trump's proposal to increase the child tax credit, which would give tax money back to families when they have children. I was a social worker, said one student, so I understand how important tax credits like this are. One student said, while a slew of others uh, described the idea as positive. Well, Phillips then mentioned Trump's proposal to eliminate the death tax, which would get rid of the estate tax. I do think that's a good idea because I'm from New Jersey and we used to have a really heavy inheritance tax, another girl said. Well, Phillips then discussed a third part of the uh, Trump tax plan that would lower small business tax rates to a maximum of of 25 percent. My family is a small business, so I would definitely think that's a positive thing, the student from New Jersey said. Anyway, we can help small business work and thrive. It's definitely something that 
that is beneficial for the country, another student added. Well, Phillips then asked the students, um, he was questioning what their overall thoughts were on the Bernie Sanders alternative to Trump's tax reform plan. All of the students in the video said they agree with Sanders' plan and believe it's better than the Trump proposal, which, of course, was the one they just approved. I think it was pretty good, a student said, definitely better than whatever Trump is proposing. I would make that uh, leap right here. What if I told you that this actually is Donald Trump's tax plan, not Bernie's, Phillips asked. You got me, she responded. Is it? It's Trump's plan, says another. I'm definitely happy, happily surprised that it sounds a lot better than I would have expected it to, she said. I am shocked that I agree with Trump on certain things, another student said. I would have imagined that he would be a little more stupid than that, one student added. I think if you said it was Trump, at least for many people, there would be more opposition to it just because it was Trump, another said. And isn't that human nature? Now, I'm pointing out students who oppose Trump, but I think the same would be true if a year and a half, two years ago, we had presented details of the previous administration's plans, things that uh, might be favorable even to a group that may have opposed his uh, presidency. But that's human nature. We don't necessarily look at the actual details, but rather the name at the head of the uh, document and decide uh, out of our own ignorance what uh, what we approve and what we disapprove. It would be a good idea if we actually spent some time studying the details. Well, Tony Podesta, a powerful Democratic lobbyist and the brother of Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, reportedly has entered Robert Mueller's investigative crosshairs as a special counsel office probes whether his firm violated federal law. NBC News first reported that Podesta and his Democratic lobby firm are now subjects in the special counsel's Russia investigation after inquiries regarding former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort's finances. The Podesta Group was co-founded by Tony and his brother John Podesta, who is a longtime Clinton aide and served as chairman of her 2016 presidential campaign. According to Monday's NBC News report, Manafort organized a PR campaign for a pro-Ukraine nonprofit called the European Center for a Modern Ukraine, which reportedly was backed by a pro-Russia party. The Podesta Group reportedly was one of many firms that worked on the campaign. According to NBC News, Mueller's team began looking at Podesta and his company and is now pursuing a criminal inquiry into whether the company violated the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA. Under FARA, people in the United States who lobby on behalf of foreign entities rather, must register through the Justice Department as a foreign agent and disclose their work. Podesta's firm eventually filed a registration with the ECMU work um, after the, uh, the media reported on the business and Congress started asking questions. But in a statement today, a spokesman for the Podesta Group claimed the company was in compliance, citing a series of filings dating back years and is fully cooperating with the special counsel's office. Well, the Podesta Group fully disclosed its representation of the European Center for uh, a Modern Ukraine uh, and complied with FARA by filing under the Lobbying Disclosure Act over five years ago and within weeks of starting the work, a spokesperson said. Any insinuation to the contrary is false. The Podesta Group has fully cooperated with the special counsel's office and taken every possible step to pro- provide documents that confirm compliance with the law. Based on our due diligence and on the recommendation of definitive legal experts, the firm immediately filed the appropriate public disclosures of its representation of the organization over five years ago and in eight subsequent 
subsequent public filings. So there may be nothing there, but apparently Mueller's looking into it. The spokesperson said the work uh, of this organization was in support of Ukraine's admission into the EU, a position supported by foreign policy experts at the time. They provided formal certification that it was neither funded by nor directed by a government or political party. The special counsel's office declined to comment on whether Mueller's team is investigating investigating Tony Podesta and his firm. John Podesta left the company years ago. And Mueller, of course, did not respond. Former FBI Director James Comey's secret Twitter account has finally been revealed after months of rumors linking him to cryptic tweets from the former BU account or at former BU account. The account created to stir uh, earlier this year uh, when Gizmodo reported that it likely belonged to Comey. At the time, the account used the handle at Project Exile 7. The account's name has remained Reinhold Niebuhr. Hmm. And while the origins of the account was unclear, Reinhold Niebuhr was an American theologian who died in 1971. Comey wrote a thesis on Niebuhr while a student at the College of William and Mary. Well, the account's first tweet was sent on uh, the 30th of March, a meme of Will Farrell saying, actually, I'm not even mad. That's amazing. And a link to the FBI website. A second tweet, a photo of the Hudson River was sent back in October the 18th. A photo of the uh, Little Round Top Gettysburg was tweeted the following day with a message, good place to think about leadership and values. I'm not sure what the point of the uh, account was, but there were several tweets sent from it. Now, of course, Comey's in the crosshairs of a number of uh, speculators, so this may or may not be significant. Uh, journalist Benjamin Witz, a close friend of Comey, who has uh, long refused to confirm the identity at former BU, admitted uh, on Monday that the account belongs to the former FBI chief. OK, in light of the latest tweet, I will confirm that at former BU is, in fact, James Comey himself, he tweeted. President Trump uh, took a swing at Comey last week again uh, when he tweeted that the former FBI director totally protected Hillary in the private email case. Trump made the attack following the release of FBI documents that show Comey began drafting a statement on on uh, Clinton's email investigation months before interviewing key witnesses in the Clinton uh, case or or interviewing Clinton herself. Well, President Trump uh, announced that he is expected tomorrow to announce a tighter cap on the number of refugees admitted into the United States and a call for tougher vetting rules as his administration's refugee ban expires. The administration's 120-day suspension of admissions from uh, for most refugee lapses on Tuesday, coinciding with the deadline, Trump is expected to sign a document starting the process of allowing refugees back into the United States under new guidelines. Under the new rules, the U.S. would cap refugee admissions to 45,000. That's down from 110,000 under the last year of the Obama administration. The administration will allow uh, will also rather seek to enhance procedures for refugee uh, entries by raising standards uh, for vetting. And Kate Steinle's uh, murder-fueled national uh, outrage and became a flashpoint on the divisive debate over the uh, the twin issues of illegal immigration and U.S. sanctuary cities. And now her accused killer is getting his day in court. A homeless illegal immigrant from Mexico is charged with the slaying, which began became rather a, a signature issue of Donald Trump's uh, as he was running for president at the time. Trump invoked the murder in calling for the construction of a wall on the Mexican border and stepping up deportations and cracking down on illegal immigration. The 32-year-old woman and her father, James Steinle, were strolling on San Francisco's Embarcadero in July of 2015 when she was shot. 
Help me, Dad, were her last words, and that's how the trial began. Two days after Steinle was shot, Trump released a, a tough statement on her killing. Uh, Jose Inez Garcia Zarat, uh, 54, admits shooting Steinle, but says it was an accident. A jury of six men and six women began hearing opening statements today in the courtroom of Judge Samuel Fang. This is the gun fired at a young woman named Kane, uh, uh, Catherine Steinle on Pier 14. The prosecutor, Diane Garcia, told the jury in the opening statement she pointed at the defendant, she's dead because this man pointed a gun in her direction and pulled the trigger. And so the trial begins. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk a bit about the troops who were, um, who were ambushed and killed in Niger. Lots of people are wondering, why are we even there? In fact, some members of Congress suggested we didn't even know we had troops in the area. We'll explain what was explained earlier today. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Next hour, we're going to talk with Rachel Gresler. She's a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements. Yesterday marked the 31st anniversary of President Reagan's Tax Reform Act of 1986. We're going to take a look back and a look forward as to what we might expect in terms of tax reform from this uh, Congress. We're also going to talk with author Jeff Kinley. The book is The End of America, Bible Prophecy and a Country in Crisis. He'll join us at about 15 minutes after five o'clock. There has been immense speculation surrounding the ambush in Niger earlier this month that left four U.S. troops dead. A top U.S. general addressed the ambush's timeline and provided new details on the attack earlier today. General Joseph Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, acknowledged today that the Pentagon, uh, at the Pentagon rather, that details of the attack have not been forthcoming and said the four servicemen who died on the 4th of October passed during a complex situation and a difficult firefight. On October the 3rd, a 12-member American team accompanied 30 Nigerian forces reportedly in unarmored trucks to an area approximately 52 miles north of the capital of Niamey. Upon their return on October the 4th, the team was reportedly ambushed by about 50 ISIS-affiliated militants traveling by vehicle carrying small arms and rocket-propelled grenade launchers. The attack left four U.S. servicemen and approximately 10 Nigerian troops dead. They did not expect resistance on that patrol when they first planned it, Dunford said. He also pushed back on reports that the special operations team was lured into an ambush, which he said lasted several hours. Well, U.S. Special Forces Sergeant Brian Black, U.S. Army Special Forces Sergeant Jeremy Johnson, or Jeremiah Johnson, rather, U.S. Special Forces Sergeant Dustin Wright, and U.S. Special Forces Sergeant LaDavid Johnson were killed in Niger, West Africa, on the 4th of October this year. It wasn't until one hour into the ambush that the team called for air support. It took two French Mirage fighter jets 30 minutes to respond to the request, and the jets weren't overheard until two hours after the battle began, or rather overhead. The bodies of three Americans who were killed were transported from the battle scene, but Sergeant LaDavid Johnson's body wasn't recovered until the 6th of October, a full two days later by Nigerian forces who transferred Johnson's body to the U.S. military. The Pentagon requested national assets from the U.S. government once we found out Sergeant Johnson was mincing, um, uh, Dunford said. No drones were overhead when the servicemen were attacked, but Dunford said a drone was sent overhead within minutes. The general added that U.S. troops only accompany local forces when 
Contact with the enemy is unlikely, and that was the expectation this time around. When asked if the U.S. would respond to those responsible for the ambush, he said the U.S. should enable local partners to go after them. Uh, Three weeks after the attack, Dunford said the military still needs to investigate several matters, including whether the U.S. had adequate intelligence and equipment for its operation, whether there was a planning failure and why it took so long to recover Sergeant Johnson's body. U.S. forces have been in Niger for about 20 years and a joint special operations task force was created by the U.S. in 2008. In 2011, U.S. and French forces set up a counterterrorism force in the country led by the French with some 4,000 troops and 35,000 Nigerian troops. There are now 800 U.S. troops in Niger, 6,000 U.S. troops within 53 countries in Africa, Dunford said. One one of the things that I found particularly uh, interesting about all of this was the weekend talking heads. Senator Lindsey Graham told NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday, I didn't know there were a 1,000 troops in Niger. Following Graham on the show was Senator Chuck Schumer, he said the same thing. No, I did not know. He's speaking to NBC's Chuck Todd. Both senators said they expect to be briefed by the Defense Department shortly. Uh, well, they are going to brief us next week as to why they were there and what they were doing, Graham told NBC's Chuck Todd. I got a little insight on why they were there and what they were doing. I can uh, say this to the families. They were there to defend America. They were there to help allies. They were there to prevent another platform to attack America and its allies. Well, Graham said Senator John McCain, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, is frustrated with the Defense Department lack of transparency, and rightly so. We don't know exactly where we're at in the world militarily and what we're doing. So John McCain is going to try to create a new system to make sure that we can answer the question why we are there. We'll know how many soldiers there uh, there are, and if somebody gets killed there, uh, then we won't we won't find out about it in the paper. And John McCain and I think Defense Secretary General Mattis are going to come up with a new process, I hope. Well, Schumer told Meet the Press, I hope to be briefed early next week as well. Schumer also said it's time to reexamine the current authorization for the use of military force that is now 16 years old, dating back to 2001, uh, an effort to eradicate al-Qaeda in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what it means, Chuck Todd, for the war's authorization is, I agreed with Senator Paul that we ought to look at this carefully. We are in a brave new world. You know, there are no set battle plans. You don't declare war and fight three weeks later. Well, it's not a war being declared, and as uh, the uh, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff indicated the U.S. has been there for some 20 years. And that particular spot at that particular time may be a different uh, answer. But uh, interestingly, um, these senators apparently had no idea. Well, the U.S. Air Force is preparing to place its fleet of nuclear armed B-52 bombers on 24 hour alert for the first time since 1991. Amid escalating tensions with North Korea, the military branch uh, chief of staff said, In a report this weekend, defense officials denied uh, that bombers were ordered to go on 24-hour alert, but General David Goldfein told Defense Defense One it could happen. Well, this is yet one more step in ensuring that we're prepared, Goldfein said. Uh, I look at at it more as not planning for any specific event, but more for the reality of the global situation we find ourselves in and how we ensure we're prepared going forward. Well, Goldfein noted that in a world where we've got folks that are talking openly about use of nuclear weapons, it's important to remain alert and to think of new ways to be prepared. It's no longer a bipolar world where it's just us and the Soviet Union. 
We've got other players out there who have nuclear capability. It's been uh, it's never been more important to make sure that we get the mission right. Goldfine went on to say Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, home of the second bomb wing and Air Force Global Strike Command, which manages the services uh, uh, nuclear service is being renovated. Defense One reported so the B-52s would be ready to take off at a moment's notice. The 24-hour alert status for the B-52s ended in 1991 in the waning days of the Cold War. The B-52, which can fly up to 50,000 feet and at supersonic speeds, has the ability to release a variety of weapons, including cluster bombs, gravity bombs, precision guided missiles. The long-range bomber can also unleash both nuclear and precision-guided conventional ordnance. The 24-hour alert status for B-52s ended in 91 in the waning, as I mentioned, days of um, of the Cold War, but apparently is at least on alert status, if uh, if nothing more. Meanwhile, the threat of nuclear war posed by North Korea has grown to an unprecedented level amid escalating tensions and the rogue regime, and now requires U.S., Jap- uh, Japanese, and South Korean Uh, governments to demonstrate different responses to the threat. That's a quote from a Japanese official today. Speaking with the U.S. and South Korean counterparts at a meeting of Asian defense chiefs in the Philippines, Japanese defense minister, uh, whose name I will not mispronounce, said that the threat posed by North Korea has grown to the unprecedented, critical and imminent level, according to Reuters. Therefore, we have to take a calibrated and different response to meet with that level of threat. U.S. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis had similar remarks, noting that North Korea's ongoing intimidations threaten regional and global security. North Korea's provocative behavior is becoming worse and worse, South Korean Defense Minister Song Yu Moo added. The comments among defense chiefs follows a report that North Korea's biological weapons program could kill tens of thousands of people and create a panic and paralyze societies. According to Reuters, the defense ministers from the Association of Southeast Asian Nations Uh, highlighted the need to maintain peace and stability in the region and called for the exercise of self-restraint and the resumption of dialogue to de-escalate tensions in the North Korean peninsula. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un called President Donald Trump a lunatic on Sunday for taking the U.S. and its poor puppet forces straight into ruin. The president last week said that he would certainly take a take a look at visiting the DMZ or demilitarized zone after he was invited to tour U.S. Army installations uh, Camp Humphreys, located in uh, uh, south of Seoul, rather, this, the South Korean capital. U.S. Air Force's Chief of Staff General David uh, Goldfein recently said the military branch was preparing to uh, place its fleet of nuclear-armed uh, bombers on 24-hour alert, noting that in a world where uh, we've got folks uh, talking openly about using nuclear weapons, it's the right approach. Officially retired Army Captain Gary Mike Rose was never in Laos at the height of the Vietnam War. He was now 69. He served as a medic in the Military Assistance Command. He studies an observations group, an elite division of the Special Forces. It was so secret that for more than four decades, he never spoke about it to anyone, not even the people he served with. Those that served with him, however, never forgot the bravery he showed during a four-day mission called Operation Tailwind in the landlocked country in September of 1970. He was then a sergeant. He ran through a hail of gunfire to treat more than 50 soldiers who were Uh, fighting the North Vietnamese army using one hand to hoist wounded men onto the back, onto his back while he fired at the enemy with the other. He himself was wounded and today he was awarded the Medal of Honor. Congratulations and it's always uh, good to remember 
bravery of others. 47 minutes after four, back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Next hour, we're going to talk about uh, the uh, 31 year anniversary of President Ronald Reagan's Tax Reform Act of 1986. Uh, in view of the tax reform that we're hearing about in Washington today. That's coming up at 5 o'clock. And then in our next segment, we'll talk with Jeff Kinley, The End of America, Biblical Prophecy and a Country in Crisis. We'll talk to him and his um, very balanced and biblical approach to understanding and preparing for what's coming. All of that in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, George Soros rather has decided to put some serious money behind his uh, radical agenda. According to the Wall Street Journal, the billionaire activist has provided the Open Society Foundations with $18 billion in funding. That's with a B, vaulting uh, the firm he founded into the upper echelons of philanthropic organizations. According to uh, 2014 figures from the National Philanthropic Trust, only the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has more U.S. assets. As of now, Soros' agenda remains unstated, but as uh, columnist Alex Newman accurately notes, Soros has provided funding for uh, everything from globalism and big government to abortion, racial hatred, radical politicians, nationalized police, Hillary Clinton, mass Islamic migration, illegal war, and open borders. So it's anybody's guess. The journal explains how the new arrangement works. Soros Fund Management, LLC, 87-year-old founder, now shares influence over the firm's strategy with an investment committee of open society. Uh, Mr. Soros set up the committee and is its chairman, but it is um, meant to survive him. People familiar familiar with it said, again, he's 87. A new chief investment officer at the Soros firm is uh, less a trader than an allocator of capital to various internal and external asset managers. Unlike past investment chiefs, the official Don Fitzgerald doesn't report to Mr. Soros or others at his firm, but to the uh, Philanthropy Investment Committee. Well, Soros doesn't plan to trade the fund. He's Uh, allocated to the firm. Rather, the money will be used to set up an ongoing process of migration from a hedge fund toward a pool of capital deployed uh, to support a foundation over the long term, as chief executive of General Atlantic LLC and committee member Bill Ford explains. What are Soros' long-term objectives? Well, in 2009, he told the Financial Times that the future should be owned by China. Really? I think you need a new world order, he said, that China has to be part of the uh, process of creating it, and they have to buy in, they have to own it, uh, in the same way the United States owns the current order, he stated. A year later, while receiving the Globalist of the Year Award from the Canadian International Council, he reiterated his China-centric vision. They have uh, now got to accept responsibility for world order and the interests of other people as well, he stated. Today, China has not only a more vigorous economy, but actually a better functioning government than the United States, end quote. Uh, The uh, would-be vigorous communist-controlled economy that has sold America poisonous pet food and toxic drywall, courtesy of an authoritarian government that has been a serial human rights violator for decades, is apparently doing better than the U.S., according to Soros. Well, why would Soros support worldwide authoritarian rule? Uh, The... um, uh, Arnold Owlert, writing for the Patriot Post, points out that I admit that I have always harbored an exaggerated view of self-importance, to put it bluntly. I financed uh, myself at some uh, as some kind of God, he once stated in his 1987 book, The Alchemy of Finance. 
an aberration, not when you say it twice. It is a sort of disease when you consider yourself some kind of God, the creator of everything. But I feel comfortable about it now since I began to live it out, he told the Independence in 1993. Unbridled megalomania goes a long way toward explaining why Soros has endeavored to advance his progressive globalist agenda through organizations operating in more than 100 countries. It's an agenda former DOJ attorney Jay Christian Adams revealed last November that leaked funding documents reveal extend to supporting hundreds of millions of dollars on um, often secret efforts to change election laws, fuel litigation to attack election integrity measures, push public narratives about voter fraud and to integrate the political ground game uh, of the left with efforts to scare racial minority groups about voting rights threats, end quote. Well, last January, Women's uh, March in Washington or on Washington promoted as a spontaneous grassroots event turned out to be a a Trump bash fest with Soros underwriting at least 56 percent of the event's partners. Soros has also been instrumental in uh, funding black Black Lives Matter, another entity that uh, claimed it was a spontaneous uprising endangering uh, or rather engendering by uh, engendered by racial frustration. Accuracy in media's James Simpson reveals it was anything but detailing its ties to several Marxist organizations, many of which also received funding from Soros directly or Soros funded organizations like uh, Tide Foundation and so on. Interestingly enough, there's not a whole lot of interest in the influence that George Soros wields because George Soros is on the left. And unlike the Koch brothers who spread their money to both the left and the right and far less of it, um, that was a cause celebre some uh, some months back. Um, George Soros seems to have remained under the radar in terms of any interest into the uh, his priorities and the influence that he is wielding, not just here, but elsewhere as well. I wish we had uh, more time to talk about that, but uh, we'll return to it on some future point. Well, a transgender Wyoming man was convicted on Thursday of sexually assaulting a 10-year-old girl inside a bathroom. <sighs> he names himself Michelle Martinez, who was known as Miguel Martinez before identifying as female. He was found guilty of first-degree and second-degree sexual abuse of a minor and could face up to 70 years in prison. The Billings Gazette reports that he... Um, He's a family friend, invited the girl into the bathroom on the 23rd of March. Um, I'm not going to describe what the paper describes. The girl told her mother about the event afterwards in um, stunning and difficult details. It's unknown whether the attack happened in a private or public bathroom. After the attack, the girl told police uh, uh, her version of the events as well. Um, It was confirmed when she was examined. Now, the thing that strikes me about this is most people don't believe that someone who is experiencing gender dysphoria and believes him or herself to be of the opposite gender may, in fact, be taking steps to uh, resemble the opposite gender, uh, that that individual is less likely to be uh, responsible for sexually assaulting someone. But it is the man or the woman, I suppose the man who exploits the situation for the sole purpose of assaulting uh, generally um, predominantly females, that's the concern, that you provide an opportunity that did not uh, previously exist. And and this is the very thing that people are concerned about. I don't bring it up to suggest that every transgender person is engaged in this kind of activity, but that this situation that's been debated back and forth creates an environment in which those who would seek to exploit it Uh, have full reign. And anyone who questions their access, uh, they are considered to be the guilty parties.
Well, the Air Force has punished a highly decorated and respected colonel after he refused to publicly affirm the same-sex spouse of a retiring subordinate. (sighs) Colonel Leland uh, Bohannon, who was on the verge of being um, promoted to a one-star general, was suspended from command and orders were handed down recommending he not be promoted. His career is likely over and he will likely have to retire as a colonel instead of a general. First Liberty Institute attorney Michael Berry uh, says, uh, uh, speaking to Todd Starnes on his television program, First Liberty, one of the nation's most prominent religious liberty law firms, is representing the distinguished military officer. This sends a clear message. If you do not have a politically correct viewpoint on the subject, you are not welcome in the military, Barry said. The military is no longer a place of diversity and inclusion if you are a person who holds a traditional belief on marriage. Todd Starnes uh, uh, hosted the program. He's also the author of The Deplorable's Guide to Making America Great Again. Um, but again, uh, acknowledging in a casual setting or or declining to acknowledge uh, a same-sex partner uh, may cost him, and, and it appears will cost him his career. Well, California health care workers who willfully and repeatedly declined to use a senior transgender patient's preferred name or pronouns could face punishment, uh, ranging from a fine to jail time under a newly signed law there. California Governor Jerry Brown Jerry Brown signed the legislation last week. The sponsor, Democratic State Senator Scott Weiner, um, has argued adamantly that nobody is going to be criminally prosecuted for using the wrong pronoun, even though the legislation provides for just that. It's just more scare tactics by people who oppose all LGBT civil rights and protections, he said in a statement last month. But the language seems to allow for the possibility, however remote, the bill itself is aimed at protecting transgender and other individuals in hospitals, retirement homes and assisted living facilities. The bill would ensure those facilities accommodate transgender people and their needs, including letting them decide which gender specific bathroom they prefer to use. It shall be unlawful for a long term care facility or facility staff to take any of the following actions uh, based on a person's um, chosen sex identification. We're going to take a quick break. When we return after news and traffic here at the top of the hour, we'll talk with Rachel Gresler about tax reform back in 1986 and maybe now. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today we're going to talk with Rachel Gresler. In fact, we'll talk with her in just a moment about the uh, tax reform package that's being pondered in uh, Washington, as well as what happened 31 years ago uh, when President Reagan signed a tax reform act in 1986. We're also going to talk with Jeff Kinley. He's the author of The End of America. There's a question mark at the end of that. Uh, that sentence, Bible prophecy and a country in crisis. So I hope you'll stick around for that as well. Well, yesterday marked 31 years since Ronald Reagan signed the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Republicans this time around are going to have to unite and follow the same pro-growth tax reform. But what does that mean exactly? And there's a lot of focus being put on who benefits and who doesn't. Um, but uh, my next guest points out that in the long run, a bigger economy that delivers more jobs, greater productivity, higher income across the board will be a boon for all American workers and their families. My guest is Rachel Gresley. She's a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So first of all, let me ask you to comment on where you think things are likely to go in Washington. We know the Senate 
has been uh, doing some preliminary work. Are we looking at a pro-growth tax reform? Yes, it's, it's definitely a pro-growth tax reform. It's maybe not the most pro-growth you could possibly get, but, um, you know, there's compromises that happen along the way. And I think that both the House and Senate are committed to passing this, hopefully before the end of the year. Now, in uh, Real Clear Policy, you uh, have an article in which you uh, ask the question, what is pro-growth tax reform? And let me ask you some of the presumptions that lay behind that and uh, how this uh, this uh, type of tax reform uh, functions. Uh-huh. Yeah, so pro-growth. What, do you, what does it mean to be pro-growth and to make the economy grow better? Well, we need people to have more incomes back in their paychecks so that you can be spending more money. Um, we need businesses to face lower tax rates so that they can create jobs. And when they create jobs, that's, again, more income. Um, we need them to be able to invest in things that help workers become more productive because when workers are more productive, they can increase their output. That translates into higher incomes for them. You know, across the board, all these spillover effects. We also need our corporations to be competitive with the rest of the world that has significantly lower tax rates. And so that's a big component of tax reform is getting the U.S. from having the highest corporate tax rate in the world to one that's at least competitive with our, you know, neighbors around us. Now, you rightfully um, point out in your uh, article with Real Clear Policy that there's a fly in the ointment and it's hard to roll back taxes without helping people who actually pay the taxes. And the top 1% of earners pay 40% of all federal income taxes. The concern that I'm hearing voiced more often is this is going to give a tax break to the rich and that has to be bad for everyone. Help give us perspective on what it means to roll back taxes on the people who are actually paying them and how that benefits everybody. Exactly. You just, you can't have a comprehensive tax, tax reform package that either excludes people that pay 40% of the taxes or even look at the top 10% who would probably be considered the wealthy in America. They're paying 90% of the taxes. If you're going to say we're only going to talk about, you know, the bottom 90% of America and only 10% of the taxes that are paid, how can you have comprehensive tax reform and do things that are going to help the economy grow? You know, a lot of the people that are considered wealthy are not just individuals, they're small businesses that are filing taxes under the individual tax code, and they face that basically 40% top rate on every dollar that their business earns, and moreover, they can't expense things. So if they were to purchase a new building or a piece of equipment, and that takes away from their bottom line that year, they don't have that money, yet they're still paying taxes on that money as though it was income and profit Mm -hmm. coming into them. Um, And so we really need to be getting over this fact that you can't benefit the wealthy through tax cuts. Well, you have to, but it's not just looking at, okay, what is the total dollar amount that this so-called wealthy individual or business gets back, but what is the total impact that that's going to have on the economy? You know, if a small business gets a tax cut of $100,000 a year, they can maybe create two more jobs that year, and then those workers become more productive and their incomes increase over time. So it's all these spillover effects that unfortunately are not getting weighed into the equation and people are getting caught up in just the dollar figures Mm -hmm. that so-called wealthy individuals and businesses are getting back. Yeah. I mentioned a moment ago, a moment ago that the top 1% of earners pay 40% of the taxes. The top 10% pay 70%. Uh, the bottom half pay, uh, only 3% of federal income taxes. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's not possible, um, to overlook those who pay most of the taxes in, uh, coming up with a pro-growth, uh, tax reform, 
uh, package. Um, now, I think that makes the point that the rich do pay their fair share, whatever that means in quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but where do where do we uh, what should we look at from here as as people are thinking about and, and following what's happening in Washington with regard to uh, uh, tax reform? I think one of the biggest cautions going forward is that this not get watered down anymore. It's it's already not what you'd have a group of economists come up with and say, this is the ideal tax system that will help the economy grow at its optimal rate. You know, there's already had to be have to been some compromises along the way, largely because of the system that we're already starting with that does. It's highly progressive and has very high marginal tax tax rates at the top. So we want to be careful that in trying to get to pro-growth, lowering the rates, getting rid of deductions and exemptions that benefit, you know, a select few as opposed to everybody, that we don't throw too many of those things back in there or say that expensing is too expensive to give businesses and therefore we can't include it in tax reform. You know, we need to consider the long-run implications and politicians have to be willing to stick to their guns if they're saying, we don't want tax cuts to benefit the wealthy. We want to reduce rates and make it pro-growth. And at the same time, they're saying, hey, I'm a politician from New York or California or New Jersey, and my taxpayers really count on that state and local tax deduction. I won't vote for a package that eliminates it. You know, you can't have that because that you have to eliminate things like the state and local tax deduction to get to those lower rates, to get rid of useless and really counterproductive things, policies that don't help the economy grow, but really hurt it. Now, for uh, many Americans who are not um, wealthy taxpayers, uh, explain the benefit that they will derive. And you mentioned um, the fact that they are more likely to be employed. There's an opportunity to be productive, which which stimulates the economy. Uh, but for those who mm-hmm. don't enjoy the two deductions that you mentioned and maybe don't see the larger picture of, of where they will benefit, help uh, help us to understand um, what we should look for in this uh, pro-growth tax reform, although it's not, it may not be as pro-growth as it might, um, but what we can mm-hmm. look for in this uh, in this plan. Definitely. And that is something that I think has been underreported and we need to be pointing out to average Americans more. So yes, 70% of taxpayers don't itemize their deductions. And so they don't get anything from the mortgage interest deduction, the state and local tax deduction, charitable deductions, those things. They get nothing from that. But under this tax reform plan, they, you know, they already take the standard deduction. What the package would do is double that. So instead of having a $6,000 deduction, if you're a single taxpayer, you're going to have a $12,000 deduction. That's an extra $6,000 that doesn't get taxed. It's double that for married couples and families. So instead of $12,000, your first $24,000 of income is a 0% tax rate. Now, that's a big boost to middle-income taxpayers. On top of that, you're going to have lower rates most middle-income Americans are only going to be paying that 12% tax rate. Um, that's significantly lower than the current you know, 15 and 25% rate that many of them are paying. And then third, on top of that, if you're a family that has children, there's going to be an expanded child tax credit. We don't know the exact amount, but they've said it will be more than the current $1,000 child tax credit that's in there. So as a whole, middle-income Americans should do very well under this new tax plan. How does this measure up to uh, the 31-year-old uh, Reagan Tax Reform Act of 1986 in terms of being a pro-growth uh, tax reform package? You know, they're similar goals and, you know, started from similar places. We were at much higher rates back then. You know, 70% rate came down to 50%. Now we're talking about 
a 40% rate coming down to 35%. So the rate reductions aren't quite as big as they were back then. Um, one thing that's in there this time around that you know didn't get pulled out last time, unfortunately, is that state and local tax deduction. So we're going, you know, some things have crept back in and trying to get those back out. I think the biggest benefit to this plan, as opposed to the 86 reforms, is more comprehensive changes on the corporate side. And that's really where we're getting hurt in America is driving businesses overseas, taking their jobs, their investments and their activities with them over there, and also not being, you know, a place that any new business that's starting up wants to locate in the U.S. So that's a big part of this is the corporate side. That's not where, you know, the big dollars are. Corporate tax revenues are pretty small compared to our individual tax revenues, but it's a really important part of tax reform. What should we expect in the next, uh, in the coming weeks and months? Are we anticipating something moving fairly quickly, or do you see this spilling over into 2018? Well, what's happened, you know, last week with the Senate passing a budget that would pave the way for a tax reform package to go through reconciliation, which would require only a 50-vote threshold in the Senate, this could potentially happen, you know, by the end of November um, if all things, you know, if the House passes it quickly, sends it back to the Senate. So there's there's optimism and there's definitely potential that this could be done before the end of the year, and that's certainly favorable because that would give some more certainty for next year when businesses want to be making decisions mm-hmm. and knowing whether or not they're going to be under the current system or if there's going to be a new tax code out there. Well, Rachel, I appreciate your helping to clarify some of the issues and what we should look for uh, in the coming months. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. Again, Rachel is with the uh, Heritage Foundation, having trouble reaching my buttons here. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with a very special author about the future of America. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out, and we would all agree, that America has seen an increase in threats of global terror, soaring national debt, government corruption, a divisive attitude among Americans, and fake news being peddled as truth. It seems our country is on the verge of a collapse and headed for irreversible destruction. We have voted God out of our politics, our government, our education system, and out of our society. Well, Jeff Kinley, uh, he assures Christians that the Bible offers a clear understanding of God's plan and what we can expect in the future. In his new release, The End of America, Bible Prophecy and a Country in Crisis, he investigates the historical and biblical perspective our country's, uh, uh, to our country's moral decline, the impending return of Christ, and how Christians should respond to live a more fulfilling and purposeful life. Well, Jeff Kinley is the author of some 30 books, including uh, As It Was in the Days of Noah, Wake Up the Bride, and The Fifth Gospel. He is an acclaimed communicator. Uh, his books have been endorsed by Franklin Graham, Bart Millard, uh, Pastor Andy Stanley, the radio host uh, Dawson McAllister, among others. His official website is jeffkinley.com, and that's spelled with an E, Jeff Kinley, K-I-N-L-E-Y. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, the end of America. And by the way, that title has a question mark after it, Bible Prophecy and a Country in Crisis. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Georgine, great to be with you. Well, this is certainly a timely subject. There's a lot of wringing of the hands and trying to anticipate and, and understand what's what's coming, uh, what's happened, how we got to where we are today, and what our appropriate response should be. What inspired you to take up this this subject from the vantage point of whether or not the United States will continue to stand in light of the challenges we currently face? Well, I think one of the primary motivations for me, Georgine, is the fact that I love my country very much. I'm a very, we're a very patriotic family. My oldest son graduated from West Point, and so we've always been uh, great lovers of our country. Uh, we're patriots, but at the same time, we're also Christians, and we have to ask ourselves as we look at the world around us that's in chaos and a country that is in crisis, does God's Word have anything to say about where we are right now, what the state of the union is, and more importantly, where we're headed and what we can do about it. And so that's why I chose to dive into this subject. Um, You write in your introduction that our country's very foundations are cracking beneath our feet. America is losing her soul. And it's not only a matter of time before the bottom drops out and we find ourselves in a free fall from which there may be no recovery. As we look to the scriptures, and that's the appropriate place to look for guidance and understanding. As we look to scripture, should we expect to see specific timelines and specific references to uh, America, for example, or are there general principles that uh, that apply to all nations, Gentile nations in particular, uh, to which we can find some understanding of uh, of not only where this nation is headed, but where the world is headed in view of the return of Christ? Well, there are many people who believe that America is alluded to in Scripture. In fact, I identify in the book six major views that some people see America in Scripture. But I think more in a general sense, you know, we believe that God has a special covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. But what about the other nations? What Mm -hmm. about Gentile nations and countries like our own? And I identify in the book that God basically judges his... um, judges Gentile nations based upon their moral conscience and their national character. We see that with Noah's generation. We see that with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, We see it with Christ talking about judging the Gentile nations in Matthew 25. And so God does expect certain things from civilizations just because of his revelation to mankind as a whole. We see that in Romans chapter 1, where God reveals his character, reveals his creative power, reveals his divinity, just through creation, and then, of course, inwardly through a sense of moral conscience. Now, the United States is unique in that it was founded for the sole purpose of permitting men and women to pursue their relationship with God through his Son, Jesus Christ, uh, in freedom. Does that um, add any... um uh, any stronger uh, responsibility then to live up to the the founding creed, the, the the core principles of the founding of our nation, or are we like every other uh, nation apart from Israel uh, held to a, a same standard? No, I think you're correct. I think as we look at the history of America, unlike many other nations uh, throughout uh, human history, that we were founded on biblical principles, that really God was in the DNA of our founding documents. And regardless of what some revisionist historians would try to make us think, as you go back, you see America was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. In fact, you see Scripture sandblasted into our national monuments in Washington, D.C. So for that reason, we've been given a lot of light. America is uh, the greatest Christian nation on planet Earth. We've done more to pioneer the gospel uh, in modern times than any other country. So I do think that there is a higher accountability specifically for Americans, but also for American Christians. Now, one of the things that we've seen over the the last 50 years in our country is a 
a deliberate um, sort of pronouncement that we no longer acknowledge our dependence upon God. We no longer acknowledge um, that he has shed his his light, his uh his grace on us as a nation. And so we have rejected him, generally speaking. One of the things that you write about in the chapter, The Road to Abandonment, is uh, Romans 1 and the abandonment wrath revealed. Talk about how God reveals his displeasure, if you will, with a nation um, and and how abandonment plays a role. Yeah, there, there are many ways in which God reveals his wrath throughout Scripture, and I discuss all those in the book. But mm-hmm. when you get to abandonment wrath, Georgine, it's very interesting that when a nation, when a civilization, when a society or culture begins to suppress the known truth about God that's revealed in creation, God says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, that he gives us over to a darkened mind. In other words, the light that we once had has been taken away because we willfully rejected the truth about God and suppressed that. And of course, that leads to a darkened understanding about everything, about life, about creation, about origins, about morality, about human sexuality, and all these things. And so there begins to be a domino effect downward from rejecting the creation truth about God to refusing to acknowledge God as creator in God. And then also we begin to speculate on what is God and what should we even be worshiping. So the Bible says that we begin to worship other things of our own creations, and then it just dominoes downward from there into a sexual and to a homosexual revolution, and then ultimately into an all-out sin fest uh, in our country. Let's talk about whether or not America specifically is mentioned in uh, in Scripture, and particularly in prophecy. Are there, and you mentioned that there are various interpretations or, or attempts to pencil the America into Scripture, but are there any direct references to this nation? We know that there are some references to references to geographic areas uh, and nations. Is America one of them? Well, we see in Revelation chapter 18, it talks about Babylon the Great, and some people see that as a reference to America. It talks about it being very wealthy and a city that uh, that pursues pleasure and that type of thing. Some people kind of put America in under that, or or that we're the eagle's wings of Daniel 7, or one of the seven heads in Revelation 17. I don't specifically see America as being mentioned in Bible prophecy, and really that begs the question, if the greatest nation on planet Earth, the most powerful nation in the world is nowhere to be found in the end times. What has happened to her? What happens to America Mm -hmm. that causes her to basically disappear from the radar? And I outlined four possible scenarios. Now, I I hate to say on that, Georgine, that that I do believe America has already had a significant impact in these last days, primarily through its support of Israel and helping Israel to uh, support them to become a nation again and being her greatest ally throughout the past 70 or so years. But also, as I mentioned before, America has pioneered the modern world expansion of the gospel. So in those two ways, we've already had had an impact. But I don't see us as really being a key player in the end times, or perhaps uh, we are absorbed into a coalition of nations that uh, the Bible speaks about in the end times. But uh, there are some possible scenarios as to why that could happen. We're going to take a break here in uh, just a moment, but we're going to continue our conversation. Jeff Kinley is my guest. He's the author of some 30 books, including As It Was in the Days of Noah, Wake the Bride, and The Fifth Gospel. Today we're talking about his latest, The End of America, Bible Prophecy, and a Country in Crisis. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking today with uh, author Jeff Kinley. His book is titled The End of America, Biblical Prophecy, or rather Bible Prophecy and a Country in Crisis. We would all agree that we are a country in crisis, but what does the Bible have to say about the future of America specifically or about a nation that uh, walks away from him in a variety of ways more generally? Uh, Mr. Kinley is the author of many books and is uh, known as a, a, a an acclaimed communicator on subjects related to what the scriptures say about uh, end times prophecy. Now, um, just before the break, we were talking about uh, the fact that um, America may or may not be specifically referenced. The fact that there doesn't seem to be that kind of specific reference you can put your finger on. It may say a great deal about the future of this country in terms of its place on the world stage. Um, let me ask you about uh, other nations that are specifically mentioned that may uh, give us some indication of uh, of our place in the pantheon of nations in the future. Yeah, I mean, there are many nations that are mentioned in the end times. Of course, uh, Israel, there's, I believe, Russia is mentioned, uh, uh, modern-day Turkey, uh, Iran, Iraq. I mean, there are many countries like that that are mentioned in the end times. And, of course, those are all Middle Eastern or, or related to Middle Eastern countries, and the Bible talks about in the end times, there'll be a great war against Israel uh, re- regarding some uh, nations that are coalition of nations that are surrounding Israel at the time. So, so the Bible does mention specific countries, uh, but as we said before, this great nation of America somehow is not uh, paying a uh, playing a major part in the end times. So, what I talk about in the book, Georgine, is just perhaps some of the possible scenarios that might be able to explain why we're no longer a major world player. I think one of those could simply be the fact that we could collapse financially uh, in the meantime. I mean, some 49% of American households are receiving some sort of government uh, benefits right now. And so our country financially is, it has been on a road uh, of financial decline. I think another possibility would be, and we don't like to think about this, but a possibility of some sort of uh, attack from perhaps Russia or North Korea right now. Our, our B-52 bombers are on high alert right now uh, because of the threats from North mm-hmm. Korea. Uh, that's something for the first time, I think, in, in our generation uh, that we've really had to take seriously. So that's certainly a possibility, though no one obviously uh, wishes that would happen. And then there could also be some sort of cataclysmic terror attack or some release of, of, a, of a global or, excuse me, a national EMT, uh, EMP that could take out our electronic system across the country. And, you know, the FBI is still investigating some 900 jihad related activities in all 50 states. So there's certainly possibility of terror attack. But I think one thing that, that I think really will have a major impact on that scenario on the end times is the fact that when Jesus Christ returns for his bride and what I call the, the event called the rapture, that when the bride of Christ is removed from our country, I think that'll have a significant impact on the moral climate of our country. I mean, think about how bad things are now, but what if there's no one around to speak up for uh, marriage or morality or sexuality or the unborn? When all those people are removed from the planet and removed from our country, then I believe that's going to be the final nail in our coffin that's going to push us over the edge. One of the subjects you include in the book is the subject of abortion. You call it the greatest human injustice in the world, and that our country applauds, funds, and defends it. Um, It's important, I believe, to include this uh, divisive subject in your book. Explain to our listeners who haven't read the book uh, why this is an important marker in America's decline. Yeah, and it's a very difficult chapter to write, Georgine, Mm -hmm. obviously. Uh, You know, as you look at the fact that 
Some 56 million children are, are murdered every year worldwide, 53 million in America since 1973 to, 19, to 2011, and tw- some 2,700 a day or more. And I believe it's really uh, America's Holocaust. It's really we have exalted uh, the uh, the status of women to a goddess-like status where uh, she not only has uh, her rights over her own body, but the rights over the bodies of others. And so uh, this whole idea of abortion, I believe, gives doctors this license to kill status. And, and so, yeah, you're right. We fund it. We celebrate it. We defend it. And we're slaughtering the most innocent among us today. I don't know that in human history we can look back on America and say that we were a civilized society uh, while we not only do these kinds of things, but we celebrate this. You know, in 2015, the hashtag ShoutYourAbortion went viral uh, in our country. And I just have to ask myself, what kind of culture celebrates Mm. the brutal dismemberment of the most innocent among us? So I do believe God looks at that. uh, He sees that innocent blood being shed, and I believe those souls are crying out in heaven, uh, how long, O oh Lord, until you avenge our blood? So I do believe this is a very serious subject, uh, one for which Christians obviously need to be speaking up for, uh, but it's a, it's a huge stain on our national moral character. You write about widespread Christian persecution in other countries, and it certainly is going on at greater rates than we've seen in the history of the church. What about persecution in America? Um, where is it likely to come from? And more importantly, because Jesus spoke about it, how should we respond? Well, Christ did say, he said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And I think sometimes we as Christians get the the mistaken idea that if we're just nice to everybody, they'll love us. And of course, we should be nice to everyone. But at the same time, at some point, the gospel is going to uh, to confront people about their sin, going to invite them to lay down their their weapons and, and to surrender to Jesus Christ. You know, there's 65 countries in the world today that are actively persecuting Christians. They're dying by the thousands every week across the world. Uh, most of those countries are have a high uh, Muslim population. So the source of persecution worldwide. The greatest source is from Islam. Uh, But I think as you look at our country, you kind of dial it back, okay, what about us here? You know, we've really been given a pass because of our great Christian heritage and the fact that our government's really backed us up morally, our society and culture has really had our back on this thing. But those things have really uh, taken a turn in the past few decades. So now Christians are finding themselves not just marginalized and demonized for certain things, certain beliefs, but also the fact that now we're being sued for our beliefs uh, and we're losing our jobs and things like that. So I think the persecution that we're experiencing right now is much more social and legal. It hasn't become physical yet. I think if time plays itself out in the direction that we're going, it could get to that point. Uh, But I think right now we ought to be praying uh, for God to really strengthen the church so that we have the boldness and courage to stand up uh, during days that are very dark and people who are very opposed to the gospel. Do you believe that uh, Christians in this country have the capacity to change the, the direction of our country in a dramatic way back to a, a strong moral foundation? Or is this moral decline to be expected in view of what we read in Scripture as we move inexorably ultimately to the return of Christ? I think two things are going to happen according to Scripture. I think things are going to get continue to get darker. But I think in the church, there is the greatest potential for things to get brighter and brighter. And what I, what I mean by that is, is that the darker the night, the brighter the light shines. So this is a brilliant opportunity for Christians and for churches all over our country uh, to be able to really rise up, to not just to take a stand against evil, not just to stand for what's right, 
but more importantly, to prioritize their own hearts to make sure that their perspective is set towards heaven. You know, Paul wrote in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. And though I consider myself a patriot, and we're all patriots, but at the same time, we're citizens of heaven, Georgine. I think the second thing is that we have to set our minds and our priorities on the things that are God's priorities. Paul talks about that in Colossians chapter 3, and one of those priorities is to be salt and light in the world. So rather than withdrawing from the world and kind of holding back and throwing grenades of condemnation over the walls of the church, we have to be penetrating society with the light to shine the good news of Jesus Christ, because even the darkest and the most wicked person in America needs Jesus and can be saved. So we have an opportunity here to shine and to, for this to really to be our greatest hour. One of the points that you make in the book is that while it can be sobering, to, to put it mildly, as we read what Scripture has to say as, uh, about the culmination of time, but it also can be a time in which it inspires us toward a different kind of life, one marked with purpose and destiny, and it, it has the capacity to strengthen our faith both in God and in His Word. Um, that certainly ought to be the goal of any believer who wants to understand what the Scriptures say and to honor Christ in the way we conduct ourselves. Your thoughts on that aspect of, of understanding what the Bible teaches and still um, resolving to, uh, to, to serve Christ fully? Well, I think a good way to look at it is to look at the church in the first century. I mean, they were under a huge oppression by the Roman government. They were marginalized. Uh, there were rumors and lies told about Christians. They were in the minority, and yet through the power of their changed lives and the message of Jesus Christ, they literally turned the world upside down. And so that gives me great hope, because I see ourselves as really heading in that same direction, and yet the power of the gospel is for salvation, and nothing can overcome God's power. So if we rest in His power, we claim His power, we live in that power each day with our hearts calibrated to His, then let's let's see what God can do through us. But it's going to take every individual Christian to be able to do that. The book, once again, is called The End of America, Bible Prophecy and a Country in Crisis. It's a balanced biblical approach to events that are uh, uh, written about in Scripture. And I appreciate your fidelity to Scripture and your encouraging your readers to look there to begin to try to understand the world around us, both present and future, and that everything we see in terms of headlines and events that occur around us needs to be seen through a filter of Scripture. Jeff Kinley, thank you so much for talking with me. Georgine, always a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Again, Jeff Kinley, the author of The End of America, Bible Prophecy and a Country in Crisis. The book is published by Harvest House. By the way, his uh, website is jeffkinley.com, and that's K-I-N-L-E-Y if you're interested in more information about his ministry. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're the uh, listening to the Georgine Rice Show. This is our final segment of the afternoon. Well, in view of our conversation a moment ago with Jeff Kinley, I wanted to share with you a story out of China. Apparently, Chinese house church leaders and a toddler were arrested after singing in public. They were singing, of course, a hymn. A, Ch- a, a Chinese house church pastor, her daughter and her young grandson had been arrested weeks after being accused of overstepping the country's newly tightened religious restrictions. Now, this is the kind of uh, persecution, oppression, uh, discouragement that others around the world are experiencing. Chinese officials 
uh, warned Zhu Shijian in August that publicly uh, sharing her faith puts her in violation of the government policy. It wasn't her first run-in with authorities. Apparently, she knew the where the line was drawn, but she also recognized that as an ambassador of Christ, she had certain privileges, certain obligations to share her faith. Five years before, her previous church was forcibly seized by officials and given to China's official three-self-patriotic movement church, according to China Aid. After that, she started Zion Church. She started by singing, dancing, preaching in the parks and public spaces. Uh, she in the uh, Hubei province, uh, her ministry broke the new law, which confines most faith activities to the walls of registered churches. Now, we've seen a move in this country under the previous administration to do something very similar, that the freedom to worship was um, was replaced with the uh, constitutional um, idea of the freedom of religion. Last month, Zhu, her daughter Zhu Yu King, and her three-year-old grandson Zhu Xiaohuang were arrested. The two women were transferred to other facilities while the boy was held at the station. Christian advocates in China report that their exact whereabouts remain unknown. Their detention came just two weeks after China toughened its uh, restrictions on religious activities. The China source, President Brent Fulton, writes, The new religious regulations are sweeping in scope and, if fully enforced, could mean major changes for China's unregistered church, not only in its worship and meeting practices, but also engagement in areas such as Christian education, media, and interaction rather with the global church. Yet the nature of these activities and indeed of much religious practice throughout China makes enforcement extremely problematic. It appears enforcement, at least in Zhu Jian, uh, Jianan district, uh, is going to be strict. The regulations, which include prohibitions against publishing religious materials without approval, accepting donations without approval or renting space and unregistered church. Um, uh, don't even officially go into effect until February of next year. Other provinces have been uh, coming down especially hard on religious education for children. In uh, one province where hundreds of crosses were torn off churches over the past several years, elementary and middle school children weren't allowed to attend church or Sunday school this summer. In Wenzhou, a coastal city, uh, in a province named China's Jerusalem, officials warned more than 100 churches to keep their teens home from summer camps or Sunday schools. North of Zhejiang, officials in Henan province also forbade uh, church summer camps, claiming the hot summer temperatures would be unhealthy for children, particularly in the context of the Christian faith being taught. China's young Christians drew international attention over the summer when two were killed by ISIS in Pakistan. Ming Li Si, 26, and Li Jinheng, 24, uh, were teaching in a private school uh, in uh, Kueta when they were kidnapped and murdered. Their deaths prompted scrutiny from both China and Pakistan, where Interior Minister uh, called for a tightening of the process that issues visas to Chinese nationals. These are individuals recognizing the dangers of traveling outside the country in order to uh, teach the gospel. Meng and Li were in Pakistan on business visas. Uh, two among the thousands of Chinese sent West to help build infrastructure and trade routes as part of China's One Belt, One Road trade push. The initiative has already been identified by China's Christians who want to send out thousands of missionaries as a natural avenue for the gospel, seizing what avenues they have, few they may be. Uh, they're faithful to the gospel. And I wonder what you and I might do under similar circumstances if we might simply retreat um, and uh, decline sharing our go- sharing the gospel uh, or if we would in uh, boldness 
uh, do what others uh, have done in China and other places around the world. If persecution is coming in the book, The End of America, uh, outlines a variety of different kinds of persecution that would likely happen here should that uh, become the case. It's uh, certainly worth reading. Well, taking a look at uh, the remainder of this week, we've got some great guests lined up. Now, Clark Tanner, as many of you might recall, was the pastor of Beaverton Christian Church for many, many years. He uh, left the uh, the metro area and was out of the area for a number of years and is now back. He and uh, Glennie are back in the uh, Beaverton area. He now serves as regional executive director for the Northwest Region for Pastor Serve. I had the opportunity to see him after uh, quite a long time at the October um, Pastor Appreciation Breakfast, had a, a long conversation with him, and then saw him on another occasion just a couple of days later. But I invited him to come and uh, share with us what he's doing now, a little bit of uh, what he and Glennie did when they were away from the metro area, and we're going to talk about Pastor Serve, where he is currently involved in that ministry. Also on Wednesday, we're going to talk with Carol Kent. She's the author of a new book, He Holds My Hand. You might recall that her son, who was uh, an outstanding young man by all accounts, uh, is uh, serving a life sentence in prison for what he thought was an effort to protect uh, the children of the woman he intended to marry who were threatened by their father, um, and the charge was that they had been and were being sexually assaulted. It's a long, very sad, tragic story. And she's written about it on several occasions. She's going to join us uh, now to talk about uh, He Holds My Hand, her latest book. How do you get through the holidays? How do you live with the new normal under the cloud of having someone uh, that you love who had a tremendous amount of potential serving a life sentence in prison? Carol Kent will be my guest on Wednesday. On Thursday, Matt Stanford will join me. Uh, he's the author of Grace for the Afflicted, a clinical and biblical perspective on mental illness. What is the church's role in um, in ministering to, in dealing with, in loving those with mental illness? How can we come alongside uh, and help? And um, Matt Stanford's book, Grace for the Afflicted, offers some insight and direction to help us do just that. Whether it's the church as a whole or individuals who have a family member work in the uh, uh, in the industry with uh, those with mental uh, illness. And I, I appreciate that it's not only a clinical perspective, but it's a biblical perspective on mental health. So I'm looking forward to talking with Matt Stanford about that. That's coming up on uh, on Thursday. And then on Friday, as is our tradition, we'll lighten some we'll lighten up and we'll we'll also break in if there is breaking news. Certainly there's a lot going on in the world right now, as was mentioned at the top of the program and by my guest in just the last two segments. Uh, the Air Force is preparing B-52 bombers for 24-hour alert status. Uh, that tells you that this is a very serious, and that's unprecedented from what I understand, and uh, he mentioned that as well. Um, these are, are dangerous times. They are in many ways unprecedented, and it gives us an opportunity uh, to be men and women of faith who spend time on our knees praying uh, for our country, our, our countrymen, and certainly for the military, that we would not, uh, that this whole situation would not escalate into uh, into war. So, um, uh, again, if there is breaking news, we will break in and share that with you as well. So, again, tomorrow we'll talk with Clark Tanner, Regional Executive Director in the Northwest Region of Pastor Serve. We'll give him an opportunity to tell us all about that, uh, what he's doing, and in fact, what he did while he was away, and uh, so, and why they came back. That's kind of an exciting story, too. Well, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing and engineering a portion of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. 
Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.